The October 7th terrorist attacks in the land of Israel have provoked endless discussion attempting to provide historical context for the current conflict. Whether Israelis or Palestinians ultimately shoulder the blame is the question occupying our minds and television screens right now. Our guest today is Jeremiah Michael from the Brahms Center for Messianic Jewish Learning in Jerusalem, and he's here to give us one piece of the puzzle. Christian supersessionism, its connection to European and Islamic anti-Semitism, and how it has obscured the relationship between the people of Israel and the land of Israel throughout history, denying the right of the Jewish people to exercise sovereignty over the land God promised them. Put your hand in mine together We will walk in harmony Let me introduce you to my teacher You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Welcome back to Messiah Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Franzak, and I'm here with Jeremiah Michael from the Brahms Center for Messianic Jewish Learning in Jerusalem, Israel. How are you doing, Jeremiah? I'm uh, I'm doing okay considering the circumstances. Every day is a is a blessing, but also difficult. So, Ruch Hashem, as they say. Yeah, well, you have you know you're there in Israel. You you live there, and you've got kids in school, and so this whole thing must be like a real have it'd be taking a real toll on your family. How are you guys? Every day we need to choose to do good, and what I mean by that is the first day that this happened, uh, Simchat Torah, about, I think we're approaching a month now, actually. That day was incredibly traumatic. There was lots of crying, lots of tears. My kids were quite panicked. You know, in Jerusalem, generally Jerusalem is actually a very quiet city in Israel. And we get rockets every once in a while from from Hamas. It's This is nothing new. The rockets are nothing new. And actually, it was interesting because the night before, I told my wife, I said, you know, I want to go to the to the later prayer service at the synagogue for Simchat Torah at nine o'clock, and she's on prongs. So I could sleep in a bit, and around eight fifteen, my wife like she like hit me. She woke up and she's like, "Jemai, Jemai, there, there's there's sirens." And at first, I heard and I was like, "What?" And I was so confused. And then I heard like an explosion, another explosion, another explosion. I thought, "Wait, what is going on here?" I was still very confused. And I thought, "Okay, all this is is it's just a simple." show of force. Hamas is just saying, hey, we got rockets. Look at us. Hear us roar. Here's a few rockets. That's it. You know, not, not a problem. I thought, you know what? It's fine. Not a problem. Get my clothes on. I get my clothes on and there's another siren. So that by this point, we took our kids down to the to the shelter. We were there. The explosions were quite loud. They shook the ground of our house. Very, very loud. And then I thought, okay, well, I still I still had the thinking of it's just Hamas trying to just make some noise. They're not actually doing anything. They're just sending rockets over to an area that they know will not actually have any impact. So I said to my wife, okay, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go uh pray. And I knew it was an issue when I walked out of the house. And as soon as I walk out of the house, the two sons of my neighbors run out in their full uni- their full army uniforms. Oh yeah, and these. This is an Orthodox Jewish family, and I'm like, hey, wait a minute, like, what is going on? And then, when I really knew something was going on, 
is when I start walking up the street, I see uh, another uh, Orthodox Jewish person in his talit, that's the prayer shawl and his kippah, and he's on his phone on Shabbat. Now, I don't want to get too much into Jewish law, but in Jewish law, it's forbidden to touch anything electronic on, on the Sabbath. Yeah. So you have this Orthodox Jewish man on his phone on Shabbat, and I said, I said, what is going on? He said, everything's been canceled. There's no, there's no prayer services. We're in complete war. I was just like, oh my God. So I go back home, tell my wife, we rushed to my parents' house because we wanted to be together with them. And my brother, who, you know, he has a, he has permission because he's on reservist duty to use his phone on Shabbat. He started telling us the details of what was going on. And it was quite a very stressful time. And th- those first few days after, it was a lot of just what happened, dealing with it, trying to absorb the shock of what had happened. And frankly, I think we still don't actually fully comprehend what happened. There's still actually the numbers of the of those who are killed, it still keeps going up because the members of the volunteer force called Zaka, which are people that identify the dead in Israel, they're still identifying new bodies that they're finding that either got hidden in attics. So the numbers keep going up as to how many people actually were killed in the attack. Wow. That's horrifying. And so for us it was like it was very difficult, but then thank God our kids were able to go back to school about a week ago. And, you know, they're good. There was another rocket attack a few days ago, and that was kind of weird to be at home and have my kids at school, like, away from me. It's kind of be like, okay, like, are they okay? Are they not okay? Um, thank God they're okay. But, yeah, it's, it's listen, it's, it's definitely stressful times. It's, it's, not, it's not like a walk in the park, but I think Hashem is with us, and... Uh, I will believe we will succeed and be victorious. So I talked with uh, Boaz not too long ago, and despite everything that's going on, he seemed like he was in good spirits. And he talked about how in Israel, there's a real spirit of unity. And I wondered if you'd experienced that as well, and particularly, you know, I mean, because you're a Messianic Jew, you believe that, that Jesus, that Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel. And of course, that is not the prevailing view, and there's probably tension between the Messianic Jewish community and the non-Messianic Jewish community. Um, but in this context, where Israel's at war, are you seeing are you seeing these people all just sort of come together? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one of the things Bibi said in his initial speech on the night of the war is he said that for a few months, really about a year now, the nation had been quite divided over this issue of the future of the Supreme Court. And he said, that's over now. There's no more division. And that's that's very true. And I, what I have seen personally is a tremendous unity amongst the Jewish people right now, whether you're left or you're right or you're Orthodox Jewish, secular, Messianic. In fact, one, one cool story is that when about probably two weeks ago, I have, I'm a part of this this very large WhatsApp group of Messianic Jews, uh, Israeli Jews in Israel, and I was working out, and this message popped in, and this lady said, hey, I've, I've never done this before, but I really need help. I had to evacuate from my kibbutz down south, and I have seven kids, and my husband is up north, and my kids are all stressed, and they have PTSD, so I can't leave them to go shopping. Could somebody just do some shopping for me? And bring me some groceries, enough for my kids or whatever. And she's like, oh, and by the way, I got relocated to an apartment on 
this street and it's actually the same street I live on and she's probably a block away. So I was like, well, why not? I was like, of course, I'll be happy to help. And I thought she was messianic because it was posted in the messianic WhatsApp group. Mm. So I get home from my workout and I go buy the groceries or whatever and I bring them to her door and open the door and a kid with long uh, side locks are called peyotes in Hebrew opens the door, big black kippah. The woman comes out with like her full head wrapped. They're they're a ultra orthodox Jewish family. Wow. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. So I take the groceries and start talking to her. She's thanking me, thanking me. And I was like, how did you get involved with Messianic Jews? Like, how did you know that? I was like, I was like, how are you in my group? Yeah. She's like, oh no. She's like, it's my friend who's Messianic. And there's a lot of Messianics in this neighborhood. And she said, you guys would be willing to help. So we posted together there. So yeah. And then she said, if you want your kids to come play with my kids, they would probably like that a lot. They need, they need to interact with other kids because they're just in complete like shell shock right now because where she had come from, it was one of the places that were, that was actually infiltrated and attacked and they had like tremendous pain there. Wow. But that's just one example of the unity that I'm seeing amongst the Jewish people. And yeah, it's just, it's just tremendous. And all, and all these protesters that were, you know, protesting and, and blocking my bus ride home from work that I would get irritated and have to like walk around them because they were like down with BB and this is a dictatorship. They're now in Gaza risking their lives for me. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that this is going to be a formative experience. You know, I was just as an analogy, not a very good analogy because I was in no danger at any time, but I was in high school during 9-11. And a lot of people that are my age look back at that as, you know, that's the day that the, that the airport security was invented. And it, and it was just, a, in many ways, it was a formative life experience. And some people define the whole millennial generation as like, that's the first big world event that you remember happening. And I'm thinking about people in Israel now, you know, there's, there's kids right now for whom this is their, this is like a core memory and a life altering event. But I wondered about you personally, I mean, as someone who who you know you weren't around for the six day war the yom kippur war this is your this is this a formative event for you absolutely absolutely this is and not just for me but for many israelis so i will say that for me when this happened i feel like a different person now than i felt a month ago mm. a, a month ago at yom kippur i i you know a few day a few about a week and a half before this i felt like a completely different person and one thing i will say it's changed is it's it has brought me closer to Hashem. It's pushed me to seek after him more, to maybe study a little bit more Torah, Torah to adapt certain practices that I've not uh, been practicing for a while now. But it's also changed me politically as well, and it's changed a lot of Israelis politically. So I don't know how controversial this will be for our audience, but for a long time, I actually had supported a two-state solution. And I actually supported it so much that in the past two elections, I voted for left-wing candidates actually to implement that solution. But I can tell you that at this point, that is a idea that I completely no longer embrace because I feel like it would be a, it's proven to be a disaster, right? And in fact, even like the most, probably the most left-winging Israeli academic thinker, Yair Hasroni, very far left, like, like let's go back to 1948 borders far left, like super, super far left. He's now just on an absolute campaign to say, take over Gaza, occupy it, no stay for the Palestinians, 
drive them all out. Like he's done a complete 180. And you see a lot of that actually here. A lot of leftists basically saying, yeah, that was a nice idea for peace for two-state solution, but that's a actually a really stupid idea and we're, we're, we can't work with these people anymore because you, you cannot have peace with a people group that literally fantasizes about your death and destruction. And when there's an attack, when Jews are blown up they're passing out cupcakes and candy to their kids. Like this is not mm. a people group that you should be having in your backyard with, with the state. Now, I don't know what will happen. The United States might force a two-state solution. That might happen. And if that happens, then maybe it's God's will that it happens. I don't know. But what I can tell you right now is that for me and a lot of other Israelis, that it's been a pretty, pretty stark 180 turn away from that whole view. But there's also been an increase in faith too. There's been a lot of secular Israelis who are now turning to Hashem a lot of soldiers are asking for books of Psalms and to wear tali katans. That's the the garment with the fringes on it. Mm. There's a stirring and there's a unity. But I think the greatest thing that we as a Jewish people were lacking, I think, before this was was unity. And I think that we're definitely coming together and we're unifying. And so that might have been a sin that caused this, but I think we're doing a good job repenting from that and coming together as a nation again. Wow. Heavy stuff. So we have you here on the podcast today to mine your depth and wealth of knowledge of the sort of historical context of this whole thing, this whole conflict, because it's, it is a conflict that at least from the perspective of someone who doesn't live there, it's a, it's, this is part of a conflict that's been going on for a long time. And a narrative that's very popular right now is that the conflict started in 1948 and it started when Jewish settlers drove 700,000 Palestinians from 400 to 600 villages in the land of Israel and that everyone in the Palestinian territories is descended from these refugees and that this was a, a genocidal crime and an example of European settler colonialism. So that's that's a harsh indictment, and um, I'm sure that there's a little bit more to the story here. So maybe we should start. I don't know. You can respond to that statement, or we can rewind the clock and start to lay this this theological foundation, because ultimately we're dealing with a people that was promised a homeland, that was promised the land of Israel, and that this land has a deep significance to the Jewish people, not just a historical significance and not just a cultural significance and not just a, a, a national significance, but a spiritual significance. Absolutely. I, I think you're right to say that, you know, people think that, okay, this war started on May 14th, 1948, mm -hmm. when the state of Israel was declared. Well, it didn't start then. And it definitely didn't start on October 7th, 2023. It starts much, much further back, right? And this is actually a war that's actually rooted in a spiritual war. And But just, just we'll, we'll go back to that, but I just want to talk about the 1948 thing real quick. And that explosion in Arabic is called uh, the Nakba. And really, though, if you think about it, what happened was Israel agreed to the UN partition, which for the Jewish side actually was a pretty crappy partition. But they said, no problem, we'll take it. It's either this or the German concentration camp ovens. We'll take the partition. 
the Arabs didn't agree to it. And the Jordanians and the Egyptians said to those people, move out of the way. We're going to come in. We're going to push all the Jews into the sea. And then you can move back into your houses again. Hmm. So really, the Nakba, what people are mourning, and I, and I don't want to place uh, charges of anti-Semitism on, anybody, on anybody, but when people talk about the Nakba as a tragedy, the tragedy that you're actually talking about is the failure of Arab states to genocide Jews out of Israel. That's basically what it is. You are disappointed that the Jordanians and the Egyptians and the Syrians failed in their stated goals to wipe the Jews out of the state of Israel. Other thing I like to say, too, is that, listen, war is brutal. We have this idea that war is this clean, political, tit for tat. You kill one guy, I'll kill one guy. You have one missile. I No, that's not war. War is brutal. It's disgusting. It's vicious. It's violent. And in the context of war, I'm sure the state of Israel probably did do certain things that maybe if we were to do them again now in 2023, it would be a bit different. But that's war. It's like, I'm sorry, but that's war. When the United States goes in and it and it firebombs Tokyo after Pearl Harbor, that's war. Okay. When the, the allies uh, level Dresden, Germany to send a statement that we're here to crush you. That's war. War is brutal. And the fact of the matter is, is that the Jewish people, the Jewish state, we agree to the partition. We agree to have Arabs in the land of Israel. We didn't want to kick them out. And they were the ones that came in and attacked us. So what are we supposed to do? Lay down, let them just slaughter us? It's it's it's, it's such an absurd view of history. Like, seriously, like, what do you want us to do? Just like let people waltz in and kill us? No, you you have to fight back. And so that's really what you're talking about there about the expulsion of the Nakba is a result of the Arabs' choice to refuse the partition of the United Nations and to go to war against the new political Jewish state in the land of Israel. Hmm. But now going back, you know, back in time, but but really it's not the UN that gave us the state of Israel. Yeah. The United Nations, they didn't give us the state of Israel. The British Empire with the Belfort Declaration, they didn't give us the land of Israel. The land of Israel is given to the Jewish people by God. And really early on, he actually promises the land of Canaan, which is now the the land of Israel, more or less, to the descendants of Abraham. And he talks about this in Genesis 12. He says to Abraham, I will give this to your seed and his descendants forever. And then God you know, he doubles down again on this with Jacob, and he says to Jacob, to your descendants and to you, I give this land. Yeah, that's pretty important that it goes to Jacob, because I think the Muslims would be with you with the Abraham thing, but totally, Jacob, right. that's, that's, where, that's where the disagreement uh, comes in, is that it all, went, it all went to Jacob. Right, exactly, and that's important too. God doesn't double down and say to Ishmael, I give this land. Actually, he does give Ishmael, the forefather Muslims, a land. He says, I'll give them They'll become a mighty tribes around the world, but specifically the land of Canaan goes to Jacob, right? Who is a descendant of Abraham and then to his descendants. And then again, this this promise of a physical land is reiterated again and again and again throughout the entire Old Testament, the Tanakh, just all over the place. And if, if somebody were to say to me, well, outside of the, the Torah or the Pentateuch, where does God promise the land to the Jewish people? Are these prophetic promises? I would just give them the entire Bible. I'd say, I can't give you a verse 
because it's the entire Bible. When the Jewish people went into exile, the exilic prophets, that was a huge theme for them. It's like God still gave you the, the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to bring you back, and everything's going to be all right. You're going to come back into your land, and it'll produce food for you. And Well, yeah, you could, you could look at, like, for example, Jeremiah 29. God says, listen, you're going to exile, go into exile, get married, plant vineyards, have houses. Basically, like, don't fall into apathy and exile. Still live good lives, but I'm going to bring you back to the land of Israel. And Ezekiel, he's prophesying from a state of exile. Certainly the whole book, like especially the last half, I'm bringing you back, I'm bringing you back. I mean, the, the, the vision of the dry bones, that's not really a vision of the resurrection of the dead. It's a vision of God restoring the exiled tribes back into Israel. So you're completely right. I mean, all the prophets, it's like, yes, God gets angry with the Jewish people. He gets mad at us. What does he do when he gets mad at us? He kicks us out of the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. But when we repent, what does he do? He brings us back to the land of Israel, to the physical land of Israel. And, and so that's that's very important. That's, I mean, that theme is so pervasive across the entire Bible that, again, if somebody were to say to me, I need a scripture, chapter and verse, I, I, I couldn't do it because it's just everywhere. Unfortunately, these physical promises of the land of Israel are... They've been rejected historically by Christianity, and there are still some prominent voices within Christianity that still reject the physical connection that the Jewish people have to the land of Israel. Yeah, I think a lot of Christians today may not be aware, especially if they grew up like I did, sort of ensconced in a dispensationalist view, which um, mm-hmm. for, for our listeners who may not know what that means, the dispensationalists were a Christian movement beginning, I think, in the early 1900s might go back a little earlier than that but um they believed that god was going to bring the jewish people back to the land of israel and when they first came around everybody thought they were nuts because christian theology since probably the second century i don't know maybe maybe earlier but at least since the second century had been saying basically Either the Jews would have gotten that, except they failed, and so God has canceled it somehow, or that it was never even really meant to be understood literally to begin with, and that all of these ideas of the land being fruitful and bountiful and producing for God's people should be understood totally differently as not referring to the Jewish people and as not referring to the land of Israel. So the dispensationalists come around and and say, actually, no, this should all be taken literally, and you know, of course, that movement exploded after 1948 when it actually happened. You know, for those of us who grew up with it, it's not it's not obvious that classical Christian theology for almost 2,000 years had wanted to have nothing to do with that, and that that provides the theological backdrop for a lot of the views that people have today about Israel and the uh, the people of Israel and the land of Israel. For sure, and and it goes back. I mean, it does go back to the late first century with, with origin, right? It's like, why did God destroy the temple? To show that all these physical things, it's not really anything physical. It's actually all spiritual. Mm-hmm. And this continues. And it, it becomes part of the patristic uh, universalism. Not not universalism in the sense that all paths lead to God, but more a sense of that God has now spiritualized everything. So there's no one people group, ethnicity, land, gender, et cetera, can, that can claim to have any kind of special status with God. So the land of Israel, yeah, it's special because the entire world is special. It's special because God also has people in Ecuador. That's why it's special. But it actually has no unique 
special status or significance for any people group, especially the Jewish people. That view is not, it's not a view of the past. Like I just, this morning, I watched a little bit of Jeff Durbin. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a reformed theologian apologist from a pretty popular YouTube channel called Apologia Studios. And he came this video and he was like, should Christians support the state of Israel? And he just basically says, more or less, well, Jews who don't, he says, accept Christianity. So not, not even accepting Yeshua's Messiah, accepting Christianity. And for him, Christianity would mean reform theology. They're not real Jews. Real Jews are only those who embrace the tenets of Christianity. And as far as the state of Israel goes, it's just like any other country, the physical descendants of Abraham cannot have a claim to it any longer because they've rejected the Christian message and therefore they've lost their right to the land. So Christians, they can feel free to support Israel. They can feel free to support the Palestinian people, whatever floats your boat. Now, I will say that Dr. Michael Brown, he did a pretty impressive, thorough takedown of that whole perspective. That was I was very, very happy to see. So, you know, it goes beyond the the content of, of this podcast, but if people want to want to see like a pretty good takedown of, of a pretty, I would say, theologically rotten perspective on the Jewish people, they can just go to Michael Brown's response to Jeff Durbin. Well, I'll have our producer throw a link to that interview into the notes at the bottom of this podcast so people can go take a look at that. So God promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise is still in effect today. We're working from these principles here because of everything we've read in the Torah and then in the prophets. But like you said, sometimes there's interference in the sense that the Jewish people don't live according to the covenant. And God says, all right, you're going to the doghouse and you know the Babylonians are going to come eat your lunch or the Romans are going to come ruin your day. And I think if you're just reading about all this in books, like theological books, you probably get the idea that Rome took all the Jews out of the land of Israel, and then some came back in 1948. However, that is assuredly not the case, To uh, as those of us who have read any uh, history books know, and maybe you can expand on that a little bit, how, how Jewish people have been there pretty much the whole time. Yeah, that's, that's actually really important. And I'm pretty certain that probably the big chunk of our audience believes in and ascribes to the biblical revelation. And so for them, they say, well, if the Bible says there was Jews in Israel, it's true. But however, there's a lot of people in the world that they look and they'd say, well, of course the Bible would say that. It's a self-referencing fallacy. The Bible says God promised the Jewish people the land of Israel. Of course the Bible is going to tell you that the Jews live there because that's the promise of the Bible. So people could who don't believe or accept the revelation about could quickly dismiss that as, oh yeah, this is just Jewish propaganda. So I think, okay, but what if we were to step back and look at books or writings outside of the Bible that affirm the Jewish presence in the, in the land of Israel as affirmation of what God actually says he would do and give to them? And basically, you're right. It's like, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. And in fact, there's so much material that if I wanted to give a class on this in the Brahms Center, I could probably easily do a 10, 12-week course on just ex extra-biblical evidence for Jewish presence in the land of Israel, from archaeology to legal documents, to, I mean, to everything. So, And you're, you're talking from like from, from ancient times to the present day, yeah? Oh, yeah. Like, like just, just a quick example. 
from, you know, the ancient Near East, right? Let's go back to the ninth to sixth centuries BCE, you know, BCE being BC. So, for example, in an ancient letter from uh, Tiglath Pilsner III, he's writing in the eighth century, he's a Syrian empire, and he's writing about all the different lands in his region. And when he comes to the land of Canaan, he calls it Yudi, right? Yudi being Jewish. He calls it Jew land. It's, it's, that's who was there. Or, for example, in the accounts of the War of Sennacherib in 701 BCE, we actually found tablets of his own writing. I and mean, he's like talking about what he's doing, his conquests and stuff. And when he comes to the land of Israel, he says, I came here, me, the great and glorious Sennacherib with my great and glorious armies and my amazing weaponry. And I came to this, the land of the Judeans and I trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Hmm. And I took the higher society there. I took them all into exile, et cetera, et cetera. Now, well, interestingly enough, a couple things there. He calls it the land of the Jews. Mm-hmm. There's a extra biblical evidence of the kingdom of Hezekiah and of the exile. Now, what's interesting, though, is he doesn't come and say, I'm freeing this land from the Jewish occupiers and giving it back to the original Palestinians. He says, my great and glorious God has given me these amazing, glorious weapons, and look what he's doing to me because I now have defeated the God of the of the Israelites. For him, it's a statement of this land has been given to me by the gods, and this is my time to shine, and I'm going to shine by taking Hezekiah to exile or trapping him in Jerusalem. But it's not anything to do with, oh, I'm freeing this land from from these occupier Judeans. Yeah. And then, of course, moving into the Roman period, I, I don't even need to cite sources. There's so many Roman sources that talk about the Jewish presence in the land of Israel, coinage, and you find coins that say, like, you know, Judea, land of Israel, pagan Roman sources like Pliny the Elder that talk about the Jewish presence in the land. It's just, it's literally all over the place. And in fact, so much so that after the second Jewish revolt in 135 CE that was led by Bar Kokhva, the Romans basically are like, listen, like the Jewish attachment to this land is so strong, which is why this keeps causing all these rebellions and revolts that we have to not only drive them out of the land, we need to actually whitewash it by changing the name from Judea or you. Yehuda, to Palestina. Hmm. And then not only are we going to do that, we're going to change the name. We're going to level all the synagogues. We're going to, we're just going to flood the area with pagan temples, flood it with Gentile residents. We're going to drive all the Jews out because we have to break this Jewish connection to the land here because it's so strong that they feel like their only option against us is to revolt. And so really, to bounce back to our day and to, yes, make a political statement, the name Palestine is actually rooted in a type of anti-Jewishness. I would even say anti-Semitism, which was rampant in Rome, mm-hmm. to sit back and say, this isn't Jew land. This isn't Judea. This is Palestina. This is Palestine. And the name is an explicit attempt to uproot and to whitewash the Jewish presence and Jewish connection to the physical land of Israel. Hmm. 
So the temple was destroyed in the year 70 and the Bar Kokhva revolt was put down in uh, circa 135. But these were pagan emperors that were doing this. These were people that thought that they were gods or that they were going to become gods after they died. And yeah, overall, kind of bad guys. I try to remind Christians reading the New Testament, the Romans are the bad guys. But um, didn't Constantine like become a Christian? And dis- did the situation for Jewish people in the land of Israel get any better when the Christians took over and, and, and took charge of the Roman Empire? Okay. Yes and no. <laughs> okay. So you see, for example, like on December 11th, 312 CE, Constantine comes in and he says, okay, Jewish people that are living here, I'm going to allow you to self-govern. You can have Jewish leadership. You can have local bite dens. You can do that. Fine. So some of them some of them didn't get expelled or were able to come back. That's a great point to make, actually. When, when we talk about exile, you know, sometimes the Bible will use poetic language that can maybe sometimes tend to be a little bit exaggerated, right? Because the, the Bible writers didn't, they didn't do history that we we do history. They weren't so exact with certain things. And so oftentimes what would happen is who would get exiled would be the leadership and the upper classes basically would get exiled. And then the the lower classes would stay and they would become enslaved by the new empire to work the fields, you know, work the factory, so to speak, type of thing. Yeah. So when we talk about exile, it's never a sense of that every single Jewish person is driven from the land. It's the vast majority are driven from the land. And then those who are left are basically enslaved to the new occupiers, whether it's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or the Romans. And so Constantine, he says to the Jewish people, he says, listen, you can have self-governance. You can have your local courts, your local bodies of worship, which further proves Jewish presence in the land of Israel. For example, like on November 20th in 330 CE, Constantine says, listen, Christian clergy are exempt from paying taxes. Jewish clergy are also exempt from paying taxes as well. Now, these are good things, right? It proves Jewish presence in the land of Israel. It proves a certain type of self-autonomy of the Jewish people under this Byzantine empire. However, the reason I say no is because Constantine and his mother, Helena, they sort of do what the Romans do by not paganizing the land of Israel, but by Christianizing it. So, Helena tears down all the pagan pagan temples, replaces them with churches. She goes around and says, this is the spot where Jesus resurrected Lazarus. This is the spot where the cross was made, etc. Hmm. Now, this is a step in the right direction, right? We're, we're moving from outright paganism to at least a religion that believes in God, has a connection to a Jewish man, the Messiah, Yeshua. However, what it does for future generations of Christians is it sits back and says, oh, this is our land now. This is now Christian land. This is no longer connected to the Jewish people. It's now connected to Christianity. And if Jews reject Christianity, then they don't have a right to this land because the story of this land, as N.T. Wright would say in his book, The New Testament, The People of God, it all culminates in the Christian message. And so if you don't accept this Christian message, which has now been fortified here by all these churches and historical sites about the garden tomb etc yeah then you're rejecting the culmination of the promises of god in the in the old testament which have become manifest in christianity and therefore you as a jewish person who reject that message you have no right to claim this land as your own and that's why i say yes but also no at the same time 
And then just one more thing about Constantine is is one bad thing too is that he cuts off the Jewish connection to Jerusalem. Oh no. And basically it's like, hey, Jews can come here, you can live, you know, outside of this area, self-governed, but don't come into Jerusalem. And he allows them to come into Jerusalem once a year for Tishbaav. Uh Tishbaav is the ninth day of the month of on the Jewish calendar Av. Typically it falls around late July, early August time. And it's the day that the temple is destroyed. And he allows them to come to Jerusalem to mourn the destruction of the temple. Hmm. You can certainly see how the Roman slash Christian empire, how a theology would develop that says, you know, sort of the end of history is here. We won. The Jews are irrelevant. And that they could hold up the fact that, hey, look, we have possession of the Holy Land as evidence of that. But I imagine that uh, when when the Rashidians came in and took the land of Israel from the Byzantine Empire, I wonder how that changed the the theology there, because now they couldn't say that anymore. So, and, they, and they started getting to work right away. I mean, it, I think within 50 years or something, they built the the original Dome of the Rock, and they really sort of uh, Islamicized or, or Arabized or, or whatever the word is. They really changed, purposefully changed the character of the land at that point. Did they have the same idea? Were they thinking, haha, now we have the Holy Land. This means that God has blessed us, and this is the real end of history, and the Christians were wrong, and we, you can, we can prove that we're right because we took over Jerusalem. I mean, is that what's going on there? Yeah, that's a really interesting lead into, I guess, the discussion about Islam's connection to the land of Israel. And the religions we're talking about now, Christianity and Islam, the issue is that all of them have to, in some way, be rooted in a type of supersessionist theology. Hmm. And what's interesting, though, is just one quick thing to remember is that Islam, which begins in the 6th century, it actually was originally viewed as a Christian heresy. Oh, yeah. Right. So Islam is not like this type of thing where Muhammad was in Arabia and he woke up one day and he got a vision from Gabriel, the angel, and Gabriel's like, here's the Quran. That's sort of the Muslim perspective of how things developed, but scholarship based upon how other religions interacted with Islam, so Christianity and Judaism, basically says that Islam began as a as a heresy of Christianity. Okay. And so what happens is Muhammad, he's being raised by his uncle, who was an Assyrian Christian monk by the name of Sergius, who had all kinds of heretical ideas, certain things like Arianism and other heresies. And this influences Muhammad. And Muhammad kind of takes like bits of the Old Testament. He takes bits of the New Testament. He takes a little bit of Jewish theology, a little bit of Christian theology, and he mashes it all together. And this becomes what we know today as the Quran or as Islam. Okay. But all early interactions with Islam from from Christians, they all point to this and say, this isn't a new religion. This is a heresy of Christianity. And one of the first people to to know this was uh, St. John Damascene, who lived in Damascus at the time, which is kind of was the epicenter of Islam at the time before it spread into Arabia and then throughout, through Arabia to the rest of the Middle East and then to North Africa and then to Spain and other regions. He was like, yeah, this is, a, this is just a strip Christian heresy. Now, if we think about that, though, if it's a Christian heresy, it's going to have within its DNA certain theological positions that were in Christianity. Remember, heresies are not 
a new religion. Heresies are always a, a deviation of the religion with just slight changes and adaptations that the orthodox in the religion cannot accept. And so within the DNA of Islam is Christian supersessionism. Hmm. He's saying a little bit from the Old Testament, a little bit from the New Testament, and a little bit from Christian theology, of which is supersessionism. We have replaced the Jews as the new revelation. But Muhammad, he takes it a step further. And he says, okay, the Jewish people received the Torah. That was a revelation. The revelation became a little bit more advanced with Jesus and the New Testament, which is actually why Muslims have a very high view of Jesus, actually. And then Muhammad's like, well, now I'm the new kid on the block. I'm the final revelation that supersedes not only the Jewish revelation, but also the Christian revelation. But because I'm the new kid, I'm going to absorb a lot of the theology and ideas of these two religions, but also adapting and changing where I see fit. But what's interesting, though, is this, is that in Islam, the connection to the land of Israel actually is quite a interesting connection because in the earliest Islamic sources, what we would call like orthodox Islamic sources, there's a general apathy towards the land of Israel and towards Jerusalem. And essentially, you can actually see this too because kind of when you want to know like what a, what's the internal dialogue between, let's say, Judaism and a particular religion, you can look at the polemical literature at the time. And in Jewish polemical literature during the time of the rise of the Islamic empire and the conquest of the Islamic empire and the capturing and occupation of the land of Israel by the Muslims, the Jewish polemical literature at the time, uh, the apocalyptic literature, things like Sefer Zerubbabel or the visions of Rabbi Ishmael, there's actually very, very little acknowledgement or talk about the Jewish connection to the land of Israel. It's sort of like there's this beast of a man, Muhammad, he's a wicked man, he's he's taking everything over, we've been exiled from our land, it's a tragedy, but there's not this polemic of we've been exiled from our land because God gave it to us. It's more like, okay, he kicked us out because it's part of his political campaign to just spread Islam to the entire world. Okay, so we can mirror read those polemics to understand that because they didn't have to argue against a purported Muslim claim of the significance of the land of Israel to Islam, that such a claim probably didn't exist or we would find a lot of pushback against it. That makes sense. Right. And so what happens in Islam is that you have sort of like a two-track system going on here. The predominant stream of Islam, which would be exemplified in the Quran, Basically, it's like, yeah, Israel is important because it's part of the Islamic empire. It doesn't have a special, unique status to the average Muslim. Mm. But then at the same time, parallel to that, you have an emerging mystical tradition in Islam, which originally is called the people of the ledge, which were like the scholars of Islam, which then becomes what we know as Sufism. And Sufism is just the mystical branch of Islam. Mm. And they very early on do see Jerusalem as holy and as important and as integral to the Islamic tradition. But this is actually fiercely rejected by non-Sufi Muslims. So I can say, why would you elevate Jerusalem over Medina or in Saudi Arabia? So interestingly enough, what actually happens is you wonder, okay, well, where did this whole idea of Jerusalem's holiness come from within this Sufi tradition? Yeah. And actually, you know where it comes from? It comes from the Jewish and Christian converts to Islam who carried with them 
their love for Jerusalem and for Israel and then spiritualized it into the spiritual promise that has now been fulfilled in, in Islam. Oh. And so what happens is in the you know the, the piousic traditions of Sufism, which then later become codified in the Hadith, which is the Hadith is the basically it's the Muslim oral tradition. This becomes codified, but you have to understand that this was not some original integral idea to, to Islam. It was developed, it was rejected, it was pushed back. And then when as Islam grew and it, it obtained Jewish converts, they carry within this idea of the importance of Jerusalem and, they, and those ideas stuck in their brains because they're Jews. And of course, like you can't get rid of all, all Jewishness. You might be able to take the Jew out of Judaism, but you can't always take everything of Judaism out of the Jew. Mm. And they influenced Sufism this way. And so just an example, one prominent Jewish convert from Yemen named Ka'ab al-Akhbar, who lived during the caliphate of Abu Bakr, which is very, very, very early Islam, exactly what you're talking about. He preserves an old prophecy that says that God has given the land of Israel to the Muslims to essentially drive out the Byzantines who had at that time turned the Temple Mount into a dung heap, basically. And so then this kind of just grows and grows and grows. And then kind of jumping ahead a few hundred years, what happens is this mystical sort of like Jerusalem is important mystically because it's where the final battle, the end days is going to take place. It's where the resurrection of the dead is going to take place. It's where Muhammad was uh, ascended. This mystical view of Jerusalem sort of begins to take on a more political shape under the guidance of uh, Zingi, the ruler of Mosul and Damascus in 11. 44, and he basically needs it to rally his troops to conquer Israel. Wait, I thought they already did that. They do. They go back and forth, right? So the, the, the Crusaders take Israel back from the Muslims, and the Muslims come back and take Israel back again from the Crusaders, and it's this whole back and forth thing, and then people are exhausted. They're like, we're done with this war. But he needs he, he needs to rally his troops, right? So we, we, we got to go back in. We got to take Israel over from the Crusaders. So he, he takes the Sufi tradition— and he politicizes it by being, no, this is our land. This is Islamic land. This is our promised inheritance from, from Allah. We need to go back and, and take this over because Muslims should have a deep spiritual connection to this land. Hmm. And of course, his, his son, Nur al-Din, he further entrenches this in to, to the people later on. And kind of that becomes like how you get the situation we have today. So... You know, all that to say, just really briefly, essentially, is that it's not correct for people to say that Israel and Jerusalem have always been integral and universally accepted within Islam. Because when you look at the history of Islam and its connection to the to the land of Israel, is that yeah, there were Muslims who very early on said there is a spiritual connection here, but. The only way they were able to get that is by absorbing Jewish converts into Islam and then, again, having this type of supersessionist theology which said, okay, now because we're the new revelation, we're superseding that Jewish claim to the land and we're making it our own claim. But then even that view was rejected by the rationalist Islam extreme of the religion. And then, of course, as I said before, it kind of develops later into what we see today because of political needs. 
Yeah. Well, and that reminds me, I was, I was trying to figure out what Hamas actually, what their goals were, what their beliefs were. I didn't read the whole Hamas charter because life is short and there's much to accomplish. But I read like a little condensed version. And that idea is in there that Allah bestowed the land of Palestine to the Muslims as this holy place. And, um, you know, they need to have political control of it by any means necessary. So that's it's interesting to understand that that view does not go back to the 600s, but does go back to the 1100s. I didn't know that. Yep. You have this, you have this very kind of like mystical mumbo jumbo connection to Jerusalem early on in Islam. That's against rejected by standard Orthodox Muslims. But yeah, like this political, like, no, this is our land. We have to take over all of Palestine as they would call it, but not really Palestine. The entire world (laughs) needs to be under the Islamic caliphate. And uh, I, I actually did read the entire Hamas charter and I, Oh yeah. I sort of regret that I do, but it was just lots lots of death to the Jews, death to the Christians, death to America, lots, lots of that kind of stuff. So I don't know if you want to just keep winding the clock forward. You did mention the the crusades and generally when people talk about Christian anti-semitism and and, and I mean institutional, political, mechanical like the Goliath so to speak of monarchs and states oppressing and destroying or attempting to destroy the Jewish people, two things come up. It's the Crusades and the Inquisition, right? And since you brought it up that this guy was going to reconquer the land of Israel because the Christians came in and had reconquered it from the Muslims. Yeah. What what should we know about the Crusades as far as what it represents for Christian and Islamic theology of the land and trying to d- disconnect it because there's Jewish people there are they just kind of caught in the middle of this thing and I mean I can only imagine the suffering of having to deal with this back and forth right sometimes the crusades get a bit misunderstood as just the only intent of the crusades was just to rampage through Jewish communities and kill as many Jews as possible which they did but that wasn't the point right yeah. Okay. So that that happened, right? And very famous rabbis like Rashi, for example, experienced firsthand the horrors of the Crusades. But really, the Crusades, the their goal or or the intended goal by Pope Urban II was to take back the land of Israel from what the Christians would call the barbaric Muslims, right? Islamic occupation. Great goal. Really, it's a it's a novel goal. The problem, though. There's always this this issue with the supersessionists, and you can see here how supersessionism really does sour kind of everything. Because I mean, can, can you imagine it real quick before I kind of get into the supersessionist tones of the Crusades? Can you imagine what a a great like honor it would be for the Messiah if the Crusaders came in and said, "We're going in, we're taking Israel back from the Muslims, and we're giving it back to the Jewish people." Oh yeah. We'll, we'll, we will protect you from from Islamic invaders. We will stand guard at your synagogues. We will create safe passageway for your children. I mean, can you imagine what an absolute amazing honor that would be for the name of the Messiah if, if that's how the Crusades became? If that's how the Crusades went, that the Crusades would be a point of praise in the mouth of Jewish people. But they're not. And the reason they're not is not just because the Crusaders murdered and slaughtered Jewish people on their way to Israel— but also because of the disastrous theological overtones that the Crusaders had, which were rooted in supersessionism. And so if you remember, I talked a little bit about how 
the church fathers had a sort of a universal view of things where everything is holy now. Yeah. Everything's spiritual, which, you know, actually, ironically enough, that actually is a Jewish view too. In, in Jewish eschatology, the entire world in the days of Messiah will receive the holiness of the land of Israel. However, the difference is it doesn't negate the holiness of the land of Israel or the Jewish people's connection to it. It just simply says that what we can experience in Israel, we can now experience throughout the whole world while still maintaining the importance of Israel and its connection to the Jewish people. So hmm. there's always this like right element within Christianity, but then always just sort of like doesn't quite go far enough, you know, but this changes with the Crusades. But the Crusades, this changes that the land of Israel does become central to the promises that God has given to the Christian people. And, you know, the Pope, when he's sending out his troops, he says, this is the land flowing with milk and honey, referring to the land of Israel. Now go and take your inheritance, for you are the nation who has inherited Jesus, and you will, through your blood and your friend's blood, sanctify this place, the land of Israel. And so for the Pope, it's not just, yeah, it's land of Israel is great because everything's great. It's like, no, you as the Christian nation, you have replaced the Jewish nation. You're now the real people of Israel. And the people of Israel were promised a land, and that land is the land of Israel. So now go and take possession of your inheritance. Hmm. And so because you have this overtly supersessionist view in the Crusades, and it's preserved in works like the, for example, the Karima Burna and the poetry of Robert the Priest of just like, yeah, this is this is our land. This is Christian land. God promised it to us. When God says in the Bible and Isaiah, I will restore your captives to Israel, that's, that's the Christians. Hmm. You could see the Jewish polemical response to that then does become, no, this is our land because God gave it to us. And we are the inheritors of this land because we are God's people. And you, you see that 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 sharpening of that polemic that you don't really see with, with Islam. For example, one of the verses that the crusaders would recite as they're going to Jerusalem was Isaiah 66, verses 6 through 9. And I'll just read this real quick, just kind of get the biblical context here. So Isaiah 66, 6 through 9 says, The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause for birth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? So, and of course, the key phrase here is, shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? Connecting the identity of a nation to a land, right? Every nation needs some type of land to connect it to. And so the crusaders, as they're going through into Jerusalem, they would recite, who has heard such a thing? Has a nation been born in one day, a land been brought forth to say, this land is our land because we are the nation that the prophet Isaiah is talking about here. We're coming in. This is our land. And so the Jewish people, they're looking at this, and this is causing a theological 
crisis for the Jewish people to sit back and say, wait a minute, I thought that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people. And now it's not just like the Muslims. The Muslims basically come in and say, yeah, this is part of our political caliphate. Move out of the way. We're, we're taking Israel over. And, we're, and by the way, we're going to keep marching until someone stops us. Yeah. The Christians are coming in and the Christians are saying, no, 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 no. See, your God has replaced us or you with us. And all these promises that your God gave to you, they're now our promises. And we're coming in, we're taking over, and we're the nation of God now. We are the nation of Israel now, and this is our land. So, of course, this causes a lot of pain within the Jewish people because not only has there been massacres of Jewish communities on their way to the Holy Land, now we're actually doubling down and saying, and by the way, your God that you think is going to save you, and he's actually affirming all this by our occupation of the land of Israel. And so just as a, as a response to this, for example, one rabbi from Germany, Rabbi Yosef Kara, not to be confused with Yosef Cairo, who was the author of the Code of Jewish Law, but Yosef Kara, writing on the same verse from Isaiah, he, he flips it and he says what this refers to when it says the sound of an uproar from the city does not refer to the crusaders coming in as they interpreted it. He says what it refers to is when the cry of the children of Israel come before God from the violence done to them by the sons of Rome. Now, sons of Rome is a Jewish euphemism for Christians. Yeah. So he takes the same verse that was used by the Crusaders to say, hey, look, this is our inheritance. We're coming in, we're coming in hot. He takes the same verse and says, this is about a tragedy of the Jewish people crying out to God for the violence done to them by Christians by the Crusaders in the name of Christianity. And if you look at Jewish poetry from that time, you see a lot of people like, oh, thank God for the Muslims. Thank God for for Saladini, because we're, we're now free from the from the from the from the sons of Rome, which are Christians. And so, okay, just just one quick note here before I talk about this. The Jewish relationship with Islam is a very it's very helter-skelter. Sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's really not so good. And so just because you have good times doesn't mean that Islam is always a great religion for the Jewish people. So, for example, the Rambam, uh, he writes in his Code of Jewish Law, he says, you know, has there been any empire that has been more cruel and vicious and barbaric towards the Jewish people than the Islamic empire, you know, Islam? So there's good times and there's bad times. but under the conquest of the land of Israel by uh, Saladin's Lach al-Dani, it was a good time between the Jewish people and the Muslims. Hmm. And what you see is that the Jewish people, they interpreted the conquest of Saladin as a act of God, that God had put it within Saladin's heart to come in and to free the land of Israel from the crusaders, to allow for Jewish people to come back into the land of Israel. You know, poetry always expresses the deepest emotions and feelings of the heart. You have a poem written by uh, a very famous Spanish poet, contemporary at the time, Yehuda El Akhzrari. And he goes to Israel. And he's kind of, he, he writes a poem about a, a conversation between him and uh, a Jewish guy that had come to the land of Israel. Now, I did not have time to do a, a proper translation of the poem. So you're, none of the meter is going to be going to work. And it's not going to sound like a poem in English. But in Hebrew, it does. It's very poetic. Okay. The poem starts, I said to this Jewish person, why did the Jews come to this city, Jerusalem? He said to me, 
They've been here since the day the Ishmaelites sieged the city, Ishmaelites being the Muslims. And I said, why then would the uncircumcised not let you dwell here? The uncircumcised are the Christians. So he's saying, well, where do all these Jewish people come from? And the, the Jewish person says, oh, they, they came back when the Muslims conquered Jerusalem. And so the, the poet, he's like, well, the, the Christians are also not Jewish either. So why would they not let you be here? And the Jewish person responds, is on account that they say we killed their God and we are a disgrace to them, so we cannot be in their presence. And I said, okay, well, what caused the Jews to come back to this place? He said, for the Lord was jealous over his name and he had mercy on his people. And he further said, it was not fitting for the sons of Esau, that's Christians, to inherit my holy sanctuary, for the sons of Jacob to be banished from here. So the nations do not say, in God's hatred against them, he rejected them and brought a new people in. Hmm. And he goes on to say, the Lord aroused the spirit of the Ishmaelite king, uh, Saladin, in the year 4950. This is the Jewish calendar, so uh, equals to 1187 in the growing calendar. And he placed upon him, that Saladin, a spirit of counsel and strength and wisdom. And he and his whole army came up from Egypt. He constrained Jerusalem and the Lord gave it into his hands. And he proclaimed throughout the whole city, both to the young and to the old, saying, Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Come to her all from the seat of Ephraim. Uh, seat of Ephraim is a popular euphemism used in Jewish literature at that time for the Jewish people. All those who are in Syria and in Egypt and all corners of the earth come and gather and settle into her borders. Hmm. Right? Because Saladin, he needs a population in Israel. He needs He needs people there. And so he allows for and brings in Jewish people into Israel to resettle the land of Israel, sort of like as a stick it to you to the Christians. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that there's Jewish people interpreting this as like a divine rebuke against uh, Christian supersessionism. Exactly right. So they, they view this as a rebuke. They're certainly not embracing Islam as the one true religion. And there certainly is tensions and there's there's issues and stuff, but they do view it as, wow, this is an affirmation that when this Christian nation comes in and they say, this is our land now because God promised it to us from now and for all future generations. And then only a few generations later, you have Saladin coming in from Egypt, taking it over, pushing the Christians out, pushing the crusaders out. That is viewed by the Jewish community as an act of God. And it was celebrated, not because they're celebrating Islam, but because they're celebrating the affirmation that, okay, we're still not in control of this land. This land is in control of the Muslims now, and then it becomes the Ottoman Empire. And it's really at this point, not until 1948, that it goes into the hands of the Jewish people. But still, what it proves is that this land is just being passed around to these different empires. It doesn't actually prove that any one of them can claim divine right to this land the way we can. And we're just going to wait and hope and pray that God will one day restore us to this land and restore us to be the proper owners and possessors of this land. Hmm. So I think the way you put it as a divine rebuke against supersessionism, I think is a really great way to put it, actually. It certainly needed the rebuke, although I don't think you really see these massive shifts in Christianity um, or in Christian theology toward really actually believing the land of Israel is a perpetual inheritance of the Jewish people until much, much later. So perhaps the rebuke was not heard, but... You know, we are going to run out of time, and maybe we should fast forward a little bit. And I want to be able to help people connect the dots between that time 
1948. Because I think, again, there's a perception that everything was hunky-dory and the relationship broke down only in 1948. Unfortunately, within Islam, so Arab people, there is a rampant, deeply rooted generational anti-Semitism that does exist. Hmm. And that is very unfortunate because it has caused for a lot of problems in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. They did a poll in Lebanon about a week ago, and they asked, did you support Hamas's October 7th military campaign? Now, to be fair to the people who are asked the question, I don't know how much that of that information was censored from them, so I don't know how much they actually understand what happened. But the point is, is that of those polled, you know, 95% Sunni Muslims said, yes, good idea. 98% sh- uh, Shiites said it's a good idea. But shockingly, of the Christians who were polled, 60% of them said that they were in favor of what Hamas had done on October 7th. Wow. Now, again, I don't know what kind of information they received. They could have just been told, oh, Hamas is, they only killed IDF soldiers and because censorship in the Arab world is so heavy. So I don't know what these Arab Christians are seeing, but there is a problem with with anti-Semitism amongst Arabs, whether they're Arab Muslims or Arab Christians. There's It's a big, big problem. And I know this is like a very heavy topic probably for our listeners to be hearing all this stuff about. And I'm in no way trying to, to bash or make modern Christians feel bad. All I'm simply trying to show is that theologies like supersessionism can lead to some very dark places. Well, I don't know if it's a sign of the times or just the darkness of of the enemy's activity, or, or but it is just super unfortunate to see the specter of anti-Semitism spread. I mean, winning against the Nazis in World War II did not end European anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism in general any more than Hitler invented anti-Semitism. It's been just two millennia of Jew hate and it seems to be intensifying. And so, you know, I hope our listeners will will hope and, and pray that God will change people's hearts. And, you know, as as Boaz said, and as you said, there is a spirit of, of unity. There's a spirit of, of confidence amongst the Jewish people in Israel. And, um, you know, maybe as a little palate cleanser, why don't you tell us what what are your plans to do after the war? Or tell us about a, a good book you've read lately. I don't know. I know I know about after because I don't know how long it's going to last. But yeah, something just a, a total deviation of what we've been talking about. Um, I've been reading a really good fiction book lately called The Books of Jacob, which was written by a uh, very famous Polish author. And essentially, it's about uh, a man named Jacob Frank, who was a he was a false messiah figure in poland back in the 18th century i've heard of that guy yeah yeah yeah. so it's a historical fiction narrative basically and it's called the books of jacob because it's actually seven different books and it's a really fun book to read it's written in a very unique way i'm enjoying it quite a bit it is fiction it was translated from polish i think two two years ago but yeah so that's that's a if you want to read an interesting uh book of fiction uh you can read the books of jacob yeah, sometimes you just need to check out and and think about something else. I read Moby Dick recently, and it was one of the funniest books I've ever written. Very good. Well, thanks for um, joining us as our guest today. I learned a lot about the history of the Jewish people in Israel and 
how supersessionism has really harmed the Jewish people, not just in some spiritual or intangible way, but in a very tangible, physical way throughout history. Thanks for enlightening us. Yeah, no problem. It was a lot of fun to be here. And uh, I will say, as we all say in Israel now, we say, which means good news in, in Hebrew. We say that now when we leave each other. We may have good news and may there be peace in Israel. Well, my friend. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Jacob Franzak. Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea